G'day folk, it is Nick Swearinger. Today I'm going to read out of the biography of Martin Luther King by Stephen Oates, page 9, second paragraph, the chapter, The Odyssey. The adults remarked about how intelligent he, Martin Luther King, was. How he could see and feel things beyond the understanding of most children, how he could drive you to distraction with all his questions. When his family rode through Atlanta, he observed all the Negroes standing in bread lines and asked his parents about them. It was the middle of the Depression, and 65% of Atlanta's black population was on public relief. Emil was deeply affected by the sight of those tattered folk worried lest their children not have enough to eat. Yes, the adults said he was a brilliant child, a gifted child who could talk like he was grown sometimes. My, how that boy loved language. You just wait and see, he told his parents. When I grow up, I'm going to get me some big words. Even before he could read, his daddy boasted he kept books around him. He just liked the idea <laughs> of having them. That's cute. And his memory was phenomenal. By age five, he could recite whole biblical passages and sing entire hymns from memory. His parents and grandmother all praised him for his precocious ways, making him flush with self-esteem. In fact, he was so bright that his parents slipped him into grade school a year early. Daddy recalled what happened next. He was always a talkative chap, you know. So he shot his mouth off and told them he was only five while the other children were six. So they booted him right out of that class. <laughs> At six, he began singing hymns at church groups and conventions, accompanied by Mother Dear on the piano. Now he belted out a rollicking gospel song. Now he groaned through a slow, sobbing hymn. He sang his favorite with a blues fervor. I was, I want to be more and more like Jesus. It was. I want to be more and more like Jesus. People often wept and rocked with joy when he performed for them, but he didn't get puffed up. His daddy related and sat down quietly when he was finished. Frankly, all the fuss embarrassed him. In his preschool years, ML's closest playmate was a white boy whose father owned a store across the street from the King home. In September 1935, the two chums entered school, separate schools. Emil noticed he attended Young Elementary, Young Street Elementary School with Christine, and there was not a single white child there. Then the parents of his friend announced that Emil could no longer play with their son. But why, he sputtered, 
because we are white and you are colored. Later around the dinner table, he confided in his parents what had happened. And for the first time, they told him about the race problem. They recounted the history of slavery in America, told how it had ended with Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, explained how whites eventually maintained their superiority by segregating Negroes and making them feel like slaves every day of their lives. But his mother counseled him, you must never feel that you are less than anybody else. You must always feel that you are somebody. He did feel that he was somebody. Everyone told him how smart and sensitive he was, praised him for his extraordinary ways. Yes, he had an idea. He discussed some of the tragedies that had resulted from this problem and some of the insults they themselves had confronted on account of it. It was greatly, I was greatly shocked, and from that moment on, I was determined to hate every white person. So it was that Emil began his real education in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, he studied arithmetic, grammar, and history at school. Passing easily through the lower grades and transferring in the sixth grade to David T. Howard Colored Elementary School, where he was deferential to teachers, considerate of his peers, precocious and diligent as always. But as with other Negro children, his true education was to learn in countless painful ways what it meant to be black in white America. He found out that he, a preacher's boy, could not buy a Coke or a hamburger at the downtown stores. He could not even sit at the lunch counters there. He had to drink from a colored water fountain, relieve himself in a rancid colored restroom, and ride a rickety colored freight elevator. White drug stores and soda fountains if they served him at all, made him stand at a side window for ice cream, which came to him in a paper cup. White people, of course, got to eat their ice cream out of dishes. If he rode a city bus, he had to sit in the back as though he were contaminated. If he wanted to see a new movie in a downtown theater, he had to enter through a side door and sit in the colored section in the back balcony. Of course, he could always go to the decrepit colored movie house with its old films and faded and fluttering screen. He learned too how white Atlantans loved their confederate heritage, cherished the Halkion days when plantations and slavery flourished in the surrounding countryside. He witnessed all the fanfare that attended the world premiere of the motion picture Gone with the Wind, which opened in Atlanta on December 15, 1939, when he was 10.
White Atlanta quivered with excitement when Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, Vivian Lee, and her husband Lawrence Olivier, Olivier all came to town for the opening. There was a gala parade downtown. Then a grand ball at the auditorium, festooned with rebel flags. Here, white Atlantans reveled in songs like Suwanee River, Carry Me Back to Old Virginia and My Old Kentucky Home, and danced waltzes like Southerners of old. The next night, more than 2,000 white Atlantans crowded into Lowe's Grand Theatre to see what they fantasized was the world of their ancestors, portrayed in living color, a world of cavalier gentlemen and happy darkies, of elegant ladies and breathless bells in crinoline, a world that was lost forever in the Civil War. With its coveted myths and racial stereotypes, a good nigger, quote-unquote, was a loyal and obsequious slave. A bad nigger, quote-unquote, was an uppity and impudent black who rode in the same buckboard with a Yankee carpetbagger. Gone with the Wind became one of the most popular motion pictures ever produced in America, playing to millions of whites all over the land. This too, ML learned... A good nigger was a black man who minded his own business and accepted the way things were without dissent. And to his education, oh sorry, and so his education went. He discovered that whites referred to Negroes as boys and girls, regardless of age. He saw whites only signs staring back at him almost everywhere. In the windows of barber shops and all the good restaurants and hotels at the YMCA, the city parks, golf courses and swimming pools and in the waiting rooms of train and bus stations. He found that there were even white and black sections of Atlanta and that he resided in quote-unquote nigger town. Segregation caused a tension in the boy, a tension between his mother's injunction, remember you are somebody, and a system that demeaned and insulted him every day, saying, you are less than you are not equal to. He struggled with that tension, struggled with the pain and rage he felt when a white woman in a downtown store slapped him and called him a little nigger. When he stood on the very spot in Atlanta where whites had lynched a Negro, when he witnessed night-riding Klansmen beat Negroes in the streets there, when he saw with my own eyes white cops brutalize Negro children, when his parents admonished him to love whites because it was his Christian duty, Emil asked defiantly, how can I love a race of people who hate me? Besides, he didn't think his daddy really loved them either. His daddy stood up to whites, the way Grandfather Williams used to do. Yes, daddy was always straightening out the white folks. 
He would not let white agents make collections at his house. He would not ride the city buses and suffer the humiliation of having to sit in a colored section. He would not let whites call him boy. One day when Emil was riding with his daddy in the family car, a white patrolman pulled him over and snapped, Boy, show me your license. Daddy shot back. Do you see this child here? He pointed Emil. That's a boy there. I'm a man. I'm Reverend King. When I stand up, King said, I want everybody to know that a man is standing. Nobody, he asserted, can make a slave out of you if you don't think like a slave. I don't care how long I have to live with the system. I'm never going to accept it. I'll fight it until I die. Yes, Emil said, Daddy was a real father to me. He set a powerful example for Emil. He demanded respect. But if his father exemplified manly strength, it was Grandmother Williams Emil turned to for support in these dispiriting years. She was a tremendous source of warmth in a world that menaced and hurt him. He relied on Mama so much that his love for her, he said, was extreme. One day when he was supposed to be studying, Emil stole away from home to watch a parade in the Negro business section. It was May the 18th, 1941, a warm spring day with a scent of magnolias. in the air. While Emil was enjoying the parade, a messenger brought him terrible news from home. Something had happened to his grandmother. But what could have happened to Mama? She was supposed to be at Mount Olive Baptist Church, speaking on a Women's Day program. Emil ran home and his, his, with his heart pounding, only to find a lot of people there. His parents, people from the church. Mama had suffered a heart attack and had died on the way to the hospital. God had come for her and taken her away. Emil was stunned. But why? Why had God taken Mama from him? Was God punishing his family because he had sinned? Because he had left the house without telling anyone? Because he had run off to watch a parade? Grief-stricken, racked with guilt, the boy raced upstairs and leapt out of the window after his Mama, trying to follow her from this world. He struck the ground in a painful heap. Again shouting people ran up to him. He was still alive, bruised and shaken, but still in this world. Afterward in his bedroom he shook with sobs, unable to bear the hurt he felt inside. He cried off and, and on for days and couldn't sleep at night. Don't blame what has happened to your grandmother on anything you've done. Daddy told him in his bedroom. God has his own plan and his own way. And we cannot change or interfere with the time he chooses to call any of us back to him. But Emil was tormented by doubts. And he pressed his parents about the doctrine of immortality. They tried to explain it. 
tried to reassure the boy that grandmother was in heaven. But how could they know for sure? What if she had not ascended like Jesus and was lost somewhere? What if she were just dead? Was it possible that people just died and never again saw those loved who loved them? He felt so miserable and so alone without Mama. Who would cry for him now when Daddy had to whip him? Okay, I'm going to jump ahead now a couple of pages to page 16. We're in the chapter entitled The Odyssey, second paragraph. But he, Emel, had a serious side too, an introspective side that made him seem aloof sometimes. He liked to read alone in his room, to study the way authors and orators put words together. He asserted later that his greatest talent, strongest tradition and most constant interest was the eloquent statement of ideas. In the 11th grade he entered an oratorial contest sponsored by the Negro Elks in a distant Georgia town. A dear female teacher accompanied him on what proved a memorable occasion. Speaking on the Negro and the Constitution, King captured a prize with the force of his presentation. That night, heading back to Atlanta on a crowded bus, he and his teacher reviewed the exciting events of the day. Presently, the bus stopped and some whites got on. There were no empty seats. The white driver came back and ordered King and the teacher to surrender theirs, but King refused to budge. The driver threatened him, called him a black son of a bitch until at last he heeded his teacher's whispers and reluctantly got up. They stood in the aisle all the way home, jostled and thrown about as the bus sped down the highway. That night will never leave my mind, King said later. It was the angriest I've been in my life. Because the war was drawing off Negro college students, Atlanta's Morehouse College started admitting exceptional high school juniors to fill its depleted student ranks. In the spring of 1944, ML passed the college's entrance examinations, graduated from Booker T. Washington after the 11th grade, and made plans to enroll in Morehouse that fall. He was only 15 years old. Through the college, King secured summer employment on a Connecticut tobacco farm. It was not his first job. He'd delivered papers for years. But it was the first time he'd been away from home, and he enjoyed it immensely. Sure, he and other Morehouse students put in long hours in the hot and humid tobacco fields. But on weekend trips to Hartford, they found to their joy that they could eat in high-class restaurants, just like the white folks. They could also enter theatres by the front door and sit freely in the main auditorium. Perhaps ML noticed Hartford's ramshackle black tenements, observed all the black cooks and menials in town. Nevertheless, he spoke of the exhilarating sense of freedom he felt in Connecticut, where he could go and do pretty much as he pleased. 
But on the train trip back to Atlanta, the reality of segregation smote him like a physical blow. As the forests of Virginia hurtled by outside, King made his way to the dining car and started to sit down anywhere, as he had done on the way through New York and New Jersey. But the train was in Dixie now, and the waiter led him to a rare table and pulled a curtain down to shield the white passengers from his presence. He sat there staring at the curtain, unable to believe that others could find him so offensive. I felt, he said, as though the curtain had dropped on my selfhood. That September he entered Morehouse in search of a useful profession that might enable him to help his people. He felt a burning need to heal blacks, to break their bonds, to emancipate them. He considered becoming a physician, then a lawyer. I was at that point where I was deeply interested in political matters and social ills, he recalled. I could see the part I could play in breaking down the legal barriers to Negroes. Envisioning himself an attorney, he practiced giving trial speeches before a mirror in his room. At first, King remained aloof from the main currents of Morehouse life. Younger and smaller than his classmates, he lived at home and commuted to school for classes, still wrestling with himself over a vocation. He dated high school girls, telling them how their beauty caused the Rubicon to part and men to meet their Waterloos. Eventually, or though he became more involved in college life, he joined the football team, sang in the glee club and went out with fashionable young women from contiguous Spelman College. Like his fellow students, all 400 of them, he was proud to be a Morehouse man and felt at home on campus with its leisurely air, stately magnolias and undulating lawns. Unable to decide on a profession, he chose sociology as his major and English as his minor. As he began his studies, he was shocked to learn that he read only at the 8th grade level and his schooling had hardly been deprived. Later, he spoke bitterly about the inferior education he'd received in Atlanta's colored schools. But thanks to his intelligence, he rapidly overcame his deficiencies and earned an impressive number of A's in English history, philosophy, and sociology. But he was disappointed in many of his sociology courses, repelled by the emphasis on abstract data and impersonal force. Why study theories and numbers without seeking the human processes that lay behind them, he wanted to know. He objected to the reduction of people to mere numbers and grumbled about the apathetic fallacy of statistics. But he found guidance and inspiration from several brilliant professors. There was Walter Chivers, his sociology advisor, who taught that capitalism exploited black people, pointing out that money is not only the root of all evil, it is also the root of this particular evil, racism. Of course, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. That's off script now. 
Okay, back to the book. There was Gladstone Lewis Chandler, professor of English, whom King and the other students affectionately referred to as GLC, a native of the British West Indies, with a BA from Middlebury and an MA from Harvard. Chandler was a spare, balding man who sported a pipe and a tweed jacket, stern and caustic. In the classroom, he respected his students and demanded as much of them as he did of himself. Clarity, unity, coherence and emphasis were his word gods. Recalled an appreciative student. Like a devout disciple, he prodded his pupils with a passion that made them conscientious converts. Gentlemen, he would announce on the first day of English composition, we are going to establish GLC Word Bank. You deposit some new words each class session, invest them in congenial conversation and withdraw rich dividends. King loved Chandler's word games. When asked how are you, King would reply with a grin, cogitating with, co- with, a co- with the cosmic universe. I surmise that my physical equilibrium is organically quiescent. But Chandler also taught King the art of lucid and precise exposition. And King later described him as one of the most articulate, knowledgeable and brilliant professors at Morehouse. One of those rare, unique individuals who was so dedicated to his work that he forgot himself into immortality. Under Chandler's supervision, King polished his forensic style and his sophomore year won second place in the Webb Oratorial Contest. Then there was Professor George D. Kelsey, Director of the Department of Religion, who became King's favorite classroom teacher. Before he encountered Kelsey, he was increasingly skeptical of religion Troubled by the discrepancy between his earlier fundamentalist instruction, King's term for it, and what he was learning in history and philosophy. But Kelsey helped him work through his problems with fundamentalism. In his course on the Bible, Kelsey challenged King to see that behind the legends and myths of the book, were many profound truths which one could not escape. Kelsey also contended that pulpit fireworks were both useless and obsolete and that the modern minister would should be a philosopher with social as well as spiritual concerns. Kelsey's views set King ablaze. Thanks to him, the shackles of fundamentalism were removed from my body and he began to rethink his religious attitudes. Finally he fell under the spell of Dr. Benjamin Mays, the college president and a notorious modernist in the eyes of the Orthodox. As a preacher and theologian, Mays was out to renew the mission of the black church, charging in his books that he that too many Preachers encouraged socially irrelevant patterns of escape. At Morehouse Chapel, this tall, erudite 
man with his iron-grey hair and hypnotic voice mesmerized his young disciples by preaching stewardship, responsibility and engagement. Do whatever you do so well, he counseled, that no man living and no man yet unborn could do it better. Here at Morehouse, he was not turning out doctors or lawyers or preachers. Mays said he was turning out men. Mays challenged the traditional view of Negro education as accommodation under protest and championed it instead as liberation through knowledge. Education, he told his students, allowed the Negro to be intellectually free. It was an instrument of social and personal renewal. Unlike most of most other Negro educators, Mays was active in the NAACP and spoke out against racial oppression. He lashed the white church in particular as America's most conservative and hypocritical institution. King was enormously impressed. He saw in Mays what he wanted a real minister to be. A rational man whose sermons were both spiritually and intellectually stimulating. A moral man who was socially involved. Thanks largely to Mays, King realized that the ministry could be a respectable force for ideas, even for social protest. And so at 17, King elected to become a Baptist minister. Like his father and maternal grandfather before him. I came to see that God had placed a responsibility upon my shoulders, he recalled a few years later. And the more I tried to escape it, the more frustrated I would become. Committed to the pulpit and God the Father, King also resolved a lingering question he had about his grandmother's death. He became, he said, a strong believer in personal immortality. With no little trepidation, he approached his daddy and told him about his decision to become a preacher. Though secretly overjoyed, daddy growled that he wanted to be assured Emil would first have to preach a trial sermon in one of Ebenezer's small auditoriums. When the prescribed day came, King felt very much on trial, what with his daddy present as both judge and jury. Mustering his courage, he grasped the pulpit and launched into a sermon. He was just 17, the elder king said, and the crowds kept coming and we had to move to the main auditorium. The sermon was a resounding success, but if young king expected accolades from his father, he was disappointed, for the old man was too reserved to show his satisfaction before his son. That night, though, daddy got down on his knees and thanked God for giving him such a boy. The same year, 1947, young King was ordained and made assistant pastor at Ebenezer. As God and fate would have it, he was allowed, he was following in his daddy's footsteps after all. But he was wrong if he thought this might ease his father's dogmatic ways. One night after he'd begun preaching, King went to a dance. When daddy found out, he was furious. Did Emma not understand that Baptist doctrine frowned on dancing, especially by a preacher? The following Sunday, Daddy made Emil stand up before the entire congregation and apologize.